Welcome to another episode of the Obey Podcast. So I wanted to do the first entry into a series, and I think I'm going to revisit it time to time because it's a it's an idea that's always in my con- unconscious that I'm always thinking about, and I'm always adding li- li- I'm always synthesizing more things into this theory I have, um, and, and it's just a I, I have so many arguments against democracy, and. It ranges just from the, the theoretical and why I think it's unfair, and also to in practicality why it doesn't work, and um, why a lot of the things people want out of democracy aren't just what we don't have, but they're also impossible. So I wanted to kind of synthesize a few things I stumbled upon in the last week, and to just talk about what it kind of brings up. And I think a lot of these things play into big picture elements of democracy that are worth taking into account when you think of this in a big picture way. So I'm hoping that this is kind of some evergreen content. It's not just about a stimulus package. It's not just about um, a policy that's being talked about right now. These are things that are always going to be constant in a world where you can vote away other people's rights or things. So the the, the first uh, article... That's I stumbled upon a couple of days ago that, that caught my eye was from the mo- was from the most recent edition of of the of the National Review magazine. So it looks like this is the March eighth edition. So it's going to be uh, coming out in the next week, and it's an article titled "How Populists Talked by Jaden by by, by Jay Nordlinger." Um, so it, it's kind of a long piece, but it just goes into detail on a lot of things about aesthetics and politics and our, our democracy, at least in the existence of the United States. And I, I wanted to talk about a few excerpts from it that caught my eye. And I, 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 th- I think we'll, we'll just jump in here and I'll dig in. So one of the first things it does is it's, is, is early on, it says, and this is a quote, the uniqueness of this party today is where the workers party, said Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the GOP in the House. His fellow GOP congressman, Jim Jordan, said the Republican Party is no longer the wine and cheese party. It's the beer and blue jeans party. Ah, the politics of food and clothes. It was a specialty to the left when I was growing up in a university town. So it, it's one of these things that um, it, it's, it's easy to it's easy to notice when you're looking for it or if you're consuming too much news, right? If, if you're only spending some time with the news and you're just following the main policies that are getting pushed, you'll miss these kinds of things. But, you know, when 11 or 12 Republicans were all vying for the presidential nomination in 2016, they, they would stop in the states that had early primaries and they'd make, they'd make a big deal out of if Jeb Bush ate pizza using a fork or not in front of the press pool. So it was the politics of the, the aesthetics of the candidates because people want to read into them their values and their experiences and how they'll govern based on if they decide to use a fork and knife when they eat pizza. And it, so I, I'm bringing this up because this is, I guess, inherently antithetical to the idea of caring about somebody based on their policy positions or their principles or their worldview that they're, they're, they're voting on people 
debate based on aesthetics. And people will respond to this by, by essentially saying something along the lines of that your aesthetics and your principles are often correlated, right? So people will say something like a person who is more likely to eat pizza with a fork and knife is likely to be more elitist and elitists are more likely to be globalist or something of the sort. And somebody who's more crass might not be as a, a, a type of person that would do something that is uh, dainty. So, so it's one of these things where you can talk about aesthetics and politics, but does it really matter and should it really matter? And I, I would say not really. This is an optics situation. This is the optics of how a candidate looks. This has nothing to do with intellectualizing politics and talking about policies and talking about who has the better program to, you know, like fit, fix America's infrastructure or something of the sort. So it's something that has um, depth to it. It's, it's inherently anti-depth. Okay, so, so here's another excerpt from the article. John Kennedy is a current senator from Louisiana, Republican. He has a gold-plated pedigree, Vanderbilt University, University of Virginia Law School, Magdalen College, Oxford, partner in a New Orleans firm. But man, can he talk the talk, the populist talk. The other night, he was on Fox News talking to Sean Hannity. And then he, he, here's a quote of what he said on Hannity. I think the American people are so tired, so tired of being lectured by the managerial elite, the politicians, the media, the academics, the corporate phonies, the tuna, the tuna tartar crowd who live in the expensive condos, with the high ceilings, and the imported are on the wall who think they're better than the American people. So he's kind of pointing out, like, hey, look, he, here's, a, he, here's a senator. He's a Republican. He's talking like he's a representative of the people even though he has all these fancy degrees, and then he re resents the stereotypical person with, with fancy degrees. So it's all aesthetics. It's all optics. It's all about painting a perception of who you are instead of talking about anything of value like what you'll actually do and what the second and third order consequences of what you'll actually do are. Okay, so I'm going to continue on quoting the article. Chances are you've heard of the cocktail party circuit. For eons, populists or people playing at populism have accused others of holding or expressing the views they do because they covet invitations to cocktail parties. It's a trope that will never die. Announcing a new run for the Senate the other day, Josh Mandel in Ohio spoke of politicians who are more interested in getting invited to the cocktail party circuit than they are in standing up for the Constitution. George F. Will noted the candidate's stupefying unoriginality. May I tell you a secret? Most of the cocktail parties I've ever been to have been conservative or right-wing affairs where people get within inches of your face, breathing wine and populism at you. So, so what, what, what we're seeing here is we're seeing people who announce their candidacy or, um, as mentioned earlier, go on Sean Hannity. And when they're messaging two people, they're, they're, they're only speaking in the language of aesthetics, right? And it's obvious why people do this. This is what resonates with people. If you think the people who are ruining your life and, you know, potentially costing you your livelihood are out-of-touch elites, then you're going to resent out-of-touch elites. And that, I mean, to, to some extent, I, I, I think that's... Uh... I think that's fair to say um, how I feel about the government where I live. I feel like the governor is completely out of touch with, with people they're legislating over, and he's destroying their lives through, through lockdowns over the last year. But as a result, politicians who want your attention and want to garner your sympathy, they will just play to those tropes. And it's unoriginal. It lacks any depth. It's anti-intellectual, and it's just a thing that people say, because optically it seems to have meaning, but it doesn't really have any substance there. It shouldn't really matter if somebody is an elitist snob or a guy who actually plays catch with a football and can throw a spiral, because in the end, you want the person who 
who me, who meets your priority preference or who, who meets your policy preferences. So I don't care if Ron Paul eats a steak or a salad for dinner, because in the end, Ron Paul's Ron Paul, and Ron Paul wants to actually let me be free and engage in voluntary interactions. If Ron, I'm a person who eats a lot of meat, and if Ron Paul was a vegetarian, I would not care. I would vote for Ron Paul anyway over anybody else because he's Ron Paul. But the whole point of painting aesthetics is then once you get people to like you, you can have policies that they're directly opposed to or things that aren't in their interest and they'll overlook it for X, Y, and Z reason. That's why it's so important, especially in primaries, for Jeb Bush to not eat the pizza with the fork and knife. And then when he does, people cover it like it's a like it's a problem. Okay, and then to, to, to continue quoting the... Um, the article from National Review. In thinking about John Kennedy, the Louisiana senator, I think about Louisiana. It is a state loaded with problems. It is the third poorest in the nation. How does the rhetoric about high ceilings and tuna tartar and all help the average Louisiana, average person from Louisiana? It doesn't, but it may stoke his resentment, which is a lousy thing to do to someone. It is also a perpetual little vote getter. So it, it, it's all just it's all just hinting at the inherent issue of politics. Because it lets people play to these um, human, um, it's not it's not even a value, but but it's the human impulse to categorize, use mental heuristics, simplify things, and and group people into categories that they like and dislike. And if you can categorize and group your opposition as elitist snobs, and then you can just talk about how much you hate elitist snobs, you don't have to put things together. You don't have to fix people's lives. You don't have to make people more free. You don't have to improve the conditions of their lives by making everything more free. No, you can keep the status quo there, and you can blame the other guy, and you can just live in a world of optics and aesthetics. So the reason I broke down that is just to, 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 to reiterate our and this isn't a recent event. This is a trope that has persisted for, for decades and decades, if not significantly longer. I mean, I'm sure forms of this has existed in probably every democracy where, where people attempt to categorize their opponents as elites and categorize themselves as members of the people. And the reason they do that is because it's an effective strategy, at least to some extent. And it's an effective strategy because that is the incentive that democracy creates. If you have a, if you have a system where people vote for you, then you have to appeal to elements of them or, or, or you have to appeal to um, their, their sympathies. And if they dislike a certain group because of an image that you helped create or at least you're playing into an image that already exists out there, it's a stereotype in a lot of people's minds, and then you play to it and you appeal to it, then you're favorable over the person who doesn't appeal to it. So if a Republican comes out there and you're already somewhat sympathetic to Republicans and then they, they say all the right things in terms of optics and aesthetics, instead of intellectualizing things or thinking about it, big issues, you know they're better than the Democrat because you know and generally you don't like Democrats and it is easy to see how that person is more of an elitist and you don't like elitists. So boom, boom, they got your vote. They, they, they played to the, the simple heuristic. You don't need to think any further than that. And then that, that's how we end up in a world where the only policies that get passed are consistently garbage and consistently hurting people. Okay, so ho ho hopefully that, that's a good starting point. What I'm going to attempt to transition to now is an article I saw on openculture.com. Um, and it's in their politics section. It's called Solinsky's 13 Tried and True Rules for Creating 
for, for creating meaning, meaningful social change. So Saul Alinsky famously wrote, he famously wrote Rules for Radicals um, a little bit before he died, and it's a, it's a manual for political warfare that came out in the 70s. So this article is nice because it just lists the 13 rules, and if you want to read the full book, you can. Um, I, I've, I've, I, I've, I've read a lot of political books. This is one that I have not gotten around to yet. Um, but I know the audiobook is on Audible, so I'm probably going to pursue it at least in the next year or so. Um, but but a few of these rules kind of play back into what we were talking about before. And it's not necessarily about identity, but it's about the direct anti-intellectual nature of political discourse. And the, so if, if you're trying to get power, it makes sense to stereotype your opponent and then to create an image of them and then work against that heuristic and then set yourself up as the, the, the opposite. That, that's what the populists in the National Review article were essentially doing. Well, in Rules for Radical, it gives other rules that I guess I would also consider anti-intellectual, and they're different tactics, but the whole point is in the end to get that same political gain. It's to get people on your team and not on the other team, because you want in the end what you really want is you want your team to win and their team to lose. And it doesn't matter if you're informing people or being honest with people or actually talking about anything substantive. It really just matters that you're out there... Um, turning people away from the other side and hopefully winning some people over to your team. So, um, so, so the 13 rules, I just want to mention, I think four or five of them, but rule number two is never go outside the expertise of your people. It results in confusion, fear, and retreat. Feeling secure adds the backbone of anyone. So, I mean, that, that, that already should be ringing alarm bells for all sorts of people and, and the effort to get political power. Your goal is to not expand the minds of people you agree with. It's applying to the tropes and things they already believe, reinforce that, and play to their strengths. It's not to say, oh, you're not familiar with the Austrian business cycle. Well, let's attempt to debunk it. Let me teach you that, and then I'll teach you why it's wrong. It's to play into the tropes that people are already familiar with because they're com- comfortable with those things, and then they can make their principled, d- d- and, and then, then they can make their, well, not, not, not necessarily principled, but they, they can resort back to things they're very comfortable with and familiar with. And this is something you see a lot if you ever have talked to any type of activist, um, you know, in the last several years when they try to get you to vote for somebody or at least sign a petition. They, they, they have a certain line of talking points they're comfortable with. And if you stray from them, they'll, they'll try to redirect you back to other talking points they're comfortable with. Um, OK, so, so so then and then it's and on a very similar note, the the. the The third rule is whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the enemy, look for ways to increase insecurity, anxiety, and uncertainty. So instead of having an honest discussion, if you know somebody's not comfortable talking about environmental policy or how free market capitalism can maybe help environmental policy, but they're comfortable on everything else deregulation, well then what what you're going to do is you're going to naturally go to the one thing they're weak on and just keep pounding that home. And then maybe if you can put enough doubt in their mind, you can persuade them, but the whole mind... The, the whole argument is to find the weakness and then target it because that's what's most politically effective, even if it's not honest and it's not meant to inform. It's meant to target and use them as a tool for political power. So not only is this really dehumanizing because, um, I mean, the whole point is to use people as a means to an end, but it's, it's anti-intellectual. It's anti-information. It's anti-growth. Okay. Um, okay, and then the last couple ones I want to talk about is the the price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative. Net, never let the enemy score points because you're caught without a solution to the problem. So that's rule number 12. 
and it's pre- it's pretty much saying your your enemy can't have anything bad to say. You you need to be the one who has all the solutions. If you can see a conversation going in a certain direction, you need to have the alternative there. They can't provide one. But but what what I think the big takeaway from that is when it openly says never let the enemy score points, and it really just shows even if um, I can have an argument with somebody who completely disagrees with me, like I can imagine myself in a conversation with like a technocrat like Andrew Yang, and there would be things that I would potentially be willing to cede, like I'd be willing to cede that some of his policies are better than the status quo. But Solinsky wouldn't advise me to do that. He would advise me to never let him score that point, even if it's just a concession. But then I would solve a second caveat to it. No, I can't let them have any creative solution. I can't let them bring anything to the table. I need to not let them score points. Even if, in, in all honesty, I would concede a few things to a lot of people. Because a lot of people have a hint of truth in pretty much everything they say. And that's why they usually come to their ideas, is because there's something there to start with. And even if they get to the wrong conclusion, usually somewhere they're working from is an honest point. And that's why a lot of the issues that come up in politics, unfortunately, they come up in politics, but it's generally complex things. So you should be able to cede ground if you're having an honest conversation and if the goal is to have any type of honest discourse. But... If you're going to be effective at political messaging as you wrestle for the ring of power, then you shouldn't do that. And then rule number 13 is pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Cut off the support network and isolate the target from sympathy. Go after people and not institutions. People hurt faster than institutions. So the, so the, uh, this is just openly pretty much saying you need to target people. You need to... You need to lean into ad hominem attacks. You need to make it so these people are toxic, so people aren't willing to support them. It's like how um, people will, like, what ends up coming to my mind immediately, although this might be somewhat inadvertent, but it's the book, it's a famous book by Naomi Klein, The Shock Doctrine, because the whole first portion of the book just attacks anybody from the Chicago School of Economics or Milton Friedman just just because they helped... um, General Pinochet try to bring economic freedom to that country, but General Pinochet was a tyrant in pretty much every other capacity, um, and he didn't even really listen to them very much. But Naomi Klein is able to tar anybody who is somewhat free market because she ties the Chicago School of Economics to the fascist in Chile. So this is that rule and effect, right? You're personalizing it, you're polarizing it, and now that character is indefensible. Or if, um, or if somebody un- unknowingly, you're talking to them, and the so so you can imagine, I'm having a discussion with a leftist. I say something, and you you have a neutral person who is uninformed that's observing it. If I make a point, they could say, well, Milton Friedman made that point, and Milton Friedman worked with fascists, and he used those ideas to push fascism. And, and then she would turn to that person and be like, you don't know about the people who were slaughtered in Chile. Milton Friedman helped advise them. So you can't, I, I can't believe you're spouting ideas that are fascist like that. In, in reality, you can separate the ideas from the person. You can separate the person from one person they associate with at one point in time. But in the end, if you can personalize and polarize something and make something toxic, then you can kill the thing. You can kill the conversation there instead of having a productive discourse um, or, or at least trying to have an honest discourse. Not, you can have an honest conversation with somebody you disagree with, because I, I do this all the time, and not, not really get anywhere. Because you can find that in the end you just don't have any foundational principles, or you interpret the empirical situations differently, um, or, or you just you can't prove certain things are cause and effect, and there, there are two stories that are compelling to different people based on their intuitions.
that happens. But at least you can make an honest effort to try to get towards what could be called the truth. Um, but all these rules are suggesting tactics of recruiting people or getting people to your side or at least against the other side. And all it is done is through um, these anti-intellectual, anti-thinking. Um, all, all, all these arguments are really anti-thinking. Um, and the real crux of all the issues in our society is creative solutions. And a lot of the ways things would be solved in the society that I envision in the uh, glorious Ancapistan would be privatized, and they would be done through um, not not necessarily collective action, but it would be by private action of people who would consensually make decisions um, together if they want to fix something. And then people would be creative because they wouldn't be able to just use the levers of power and enforce their will on everybody. So if somebody, if they wanted a consensus to do something, they'd have to actually get people to agree with it instead of polarizing a small a small minority of the population that's willing to go vote. And then you can't just use these anti-intellectual tactics. You have to actually get people to consent to it. You can't just trick people into things and then enforce it on everyone. You'd have to actually get people to go along with you and then only they're affected. Um, so, but I, I guess the reason I run through these two articles is just to, to remind people who are kind of on the technocratic left. So there are a lot of people I know who are more sympathetic to the left than they are the right. And I'm not even sympathetic to either of those parties because they're both statists in my mind. But if, if you bring up a policy like, say, the $1.9 trillion stimulus that we talked about a few episodes back, and, and if you put that in front of them and you said, please defend this, here are all the things that are dishonest, here are all the things that are unnecessary, here are all these things that seem like waste or at best are inefficient, um, how could you be in favor of this? They, they can do, they, they, there's a very, I guess, sly tactic that they can do. Um, I don't think it's intentionally sly, but I, I think it's intellectually sly. And it's kind of saying like, well, just because in theory I'm in favor of a, of a status government, it doesn't mean I have to approve of the people in charge. And on, on the grounds of things, I, I, I don't, it, it doesn't initially string me in the gut that that's a wrong thing to say. But for me, when I synthesize articles like this, it crosses my mind that the state that they support inherently has it inherently incentivizes people to act in this anti-intellectual manner, and this anti-intellectual manner is what gets people into power that have no interest in being the platonic technocrat. So the so the, the system we have in it, it, the, the the system that exists, and I would argue that really any system that requires people to go vote. Um, people into power and that power has consequences and then you are a privileged person that can make decisions with power i think will inherently lead to these hollow arguments it will lead to aesthetics and, and optics over any type of policy and then it leads to bad policy there there's no incentive for people who so so I, I could lean into all these arguments that like hayek would make and and ludwig von mises would make and i i'm very sympathetic to the arguments about how it is impossible to plan an economy by, a, like, I don't even think a supercomputer could do it because you can't put into a supercomputer the preferences of every person. So I think there there is, like, the, the, this inherent socialist calculation error. I think that's, um, I, I, I think that would be the, the wording that Ludwig von Mises uses in human action, um, or it's like the socialist calculation problem. I, I, I do buy into that, but even if you could get, like, the, the 30 
you know, Andrew Yang's in a room and have them duke out policy, that would obviously be better than what we have right now. If, if a technocrat was doing it instead of a bunch of cronies, then I mean, I think I'd be willing to see that it would be better than we have right now. The problem is the, our system will never allow 30 technocrats to get in because our, our system incentivizes people to make politics about throwing a football in a perfect spiral, wearing blue jeans, and making fun of the other guy for eating um, fancy foods and having high ceilings and having a, a fancy diploma. So that, that, that is what the discourse is going to be. So I, I, I guess what I'm getting at here is anybody who says, I don't need to defend these policies, even though I'm in favor of a type of government that is similar to ours, I, I don't think you can get around the fact that our government, the type of government we have, has created the incentive structure to get where we are now. So it's not just that the wrong people are, are in charge. It is those people are a result of a system that is anti-intellectual. And it is not possible to make this intellectual. And I, I think there are a lot of reasons why you can't make it intellectual. So I think the, the, those would just range from how much time people would have to spend thinking about all sorts of issues that don't impact their daily life. Um, I, I, I think in general, a lot of life teaches you to not think about things critically already. So to assume that a person whose one individual vote is pretty insignificant in the grand scheme of anything, you have to convince them to spend hours and hours thinking about all sorts of politics and principles and um, all types of policies and all types of industries to get the correct um, platonic perfect technocrat into office um, is never going to happen. It's going to be people who do these appeals. And um, the, the last article I wanted to talk about, and this is actually a much older one, this is from December of 2018. And this is one of my favorite um, things to re refer to when I talk to people about politics. It, it's a study from the Cato Institute. It's actually a poll. And um, I, I heard them discuss this on a Cato Events podcast back, back when it came out. And it just it just blew, it blew my mind. Um, but I think it's, it's just a big picture. It's more of a big picture important takeaway than it is about what the poll specifically is saying. So, so here's the title if you want to look it up. It's on the Cato Institute's website. Poll, 74% of Americans support federal paid leave program when costs not mentioned. 60% oppose if they got smaller pay raises in the future. And then the subheading is results from the Cato 2018 paid leave survey. So if, if, we, if, we, if you scroll down a little ways and you go to, I guess it's just the second paragraph. Oh, well, well I, I think I'll read the first um three paragraphs. I think this encapsulates a whole thing. and I don't need to go into anything more than that. And then we'll just talk about what, what this says is a meta point. So it says, and I'm quoting it, the new Cato 2018 paid leave survey of 1700 adults finds that nearly three fourths, 74% of Americans support a new federal government program to provide 12 weeks of paid leave to new parents or to people to deal with their own or a family members serious medical condition. A quarter, 25% oppose establishing a, a federal pay paid leave program. Support slips and consensus fractures for a federal paid leave program, however, after costs are considered. Okay, um, the survey found 54% of Americans would be willing to pay $200 a year in higher taxes, a low-end estimate for the 12-week program. However, majorities of Americans would oppose establishing a federal paid leave program if, cost, if it cost them $450 a year in higher taxes or $1,200 a year in higher taxes, the mid-range and high-range cost estimates. And then it says the, these low, mid, and high-range cost estimates are based on the most high-profile federal paid leave programs proposed to date, the Family and Medical Insurance Leave Act, 
And then um, it goes on to mention these are from the AEI Brookings Working Group or Paid Family Leave's Cost Calculator. Okay, so I just spouted out a bunch of numbers. But the, so the, the real point is, if you tell people that, the, that there's a policy that is, I, I know some people don't like the word, but, but it's an entitlement program. It's a welfare program. So if you just tell them, should this exist, 74% of people say yes. Then, then you ask them, okay, but if it costs you $200 more in taxes, then would you still support it? Support drops, 20% fall off. So 20% flip with that information. And that, that's the low estimate based on some studies. Then you ask, you ask, okay, well, what if it costs you $450? Now opposition is 52%, and then $1,200, 56% opposition. So these numbers aren't totally arbitrary. These are the people who actually ask the question, kind of did the research for the people who were polled, and they, they, they pulled out the different estimates, and then they actually are really asking people to think about it the way that an ideal, I guess, a lot of people would envision, they, they would think about these issues. Because in real life, we have scarcity. We, we, we don't have an unlimited amount of everything. We only have so many human hours. We only have so many, um, we only have so many natural resources, and we only have so much human capital to allocate to different problems. And for, for that reason, that, uh, that's why we don't have unlimited amounts of every good. So well, you don't just ask people, hey, are, are you in favor of universal health care? Should, should everybody be insured inherently? Because then a ton of people will say, yeah, but you, you're, you're painting an incomplete picture. You're not asking them, what is the trade-off you're making? What is the opportunity cost? So once you frame it in the whole, the whole language of opportunity cost, you get completely different answers. And when all of our politics is based around optics and calling people names and then vaguely alluding to policies, but in the context of class warfare, then you're not talking about opportunity cost. You're not talking about honest trade-offs. And then when you're using tactics to taint people's reputations and then tying policies to them, you're not having a discussion of, are we in favor of this policy if it costs this much, or should we only do it to this degree because then it will cost that much? You're not actually reasoning through things and figuring out things that people agree with or disagree with. So, the so okay. So I ran through all three of those. I, I, I know I'm stammering a lot this episode. I blame it on a high amount of caffeine, so I apologize for that. But I, I think the, those three articles all come from a different angle, but they're all hinting at the they're all hinting at really the same thing. They're, they're all hinting at the idea that our politics is anti-intellectual. None of those three articles ha have the conclusion at the end of them in the last two paragraphs that says that the agenda of the article is, this is why democracy doesn't work. That, 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 that's the conclusion. I'm, I'm, I'm at least, this could be considered a volume one of sorts, but, but this is at least some of the um, concrete details and commentary I'm providing to, to play towards that thesis. It's like, okay, well, if so much of our politics is based on aesthetics and caricatures and heuristics of how people look and act and their status in society and set their views, is that an inherent failure of democracy? And I would say, yes, this is what democracy um, really is in practice. And anybody who says otherwise and imagines their technocratic utopia is just ignoring the fact that in, in the real world, this is where things end up. And even if people have gotten significantly smarter, they, they've just adapted in terms of how they do their identity politics, to, at least to some extent. Um, then you have the second piece, where it's just kind of hinting at the, these core truths 
of um, attempting to get political power. And even though that book came out at this point about 50 years ago, you see those tactics utilized today. If, if you really talk to any activist, you can tell that this is what they're going for. I know the propaganda report has done deep dives into, in, into certain activist trainings, and they've shown them more, more or less say, say these points, but not officially appeal to them. But, but the, the, these are the tactics some activists use, and it's because it's a way of gaining political power. If you make your opponent look bad, you make yourself look good, and you don't have to address the conversation head-on because it might confuse people, then why would you have an honest discussion? If you get people thinking, then they might not vote because they might be iffy on things. But if you can paint one side as really bad and paint your side as the good side just by giving a caricatured view of the world or by throwing ad hominem slurs at somebody, then, then you'll do it if your real goal is political power. And a lot of people's real goal is political power. And to, to some extent, and I say this with all honesty, my, my, my goal should almost be to get political power, right? And, and you should have that in the back of your head when you're listening to any podcast that is from a partisan like myself. Because the, the things partisans will talk about are going to be things generally that are in favor of their agenda. And that is something that has to be reckoned with. So, okay. So, 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 so that's point number two is when they have all these tactics that are specifically designed to get themselves power and to sway opinion, it's always done in this way that is anti-intellectual. It's not by informing people. It's by painting a specific picture and then tainting the other views and then trying to get people on your side or at least against the other side. Okay, and, th and then part three is just an honest-to-God poll of saying, here's an issue, how do you feel? Okay, here's more information, how do you feel? Here's more information, how do you feel? And here's even more information, how do you feel? And then each time you get a different answer, and it shows the that if you give people to different types of um, information about opportunity costs, their opinions change drastically. And we know that a lot of people go into a lot of these conversations without knowing anything about opportunity costs. They, they, they have vague aspirations, and they'll vote for people who share their aspirations, but they won't know things like, oh, a $15 minimum wage? Oh, I didn't know that the CBO estimates 1.4 million jobs will get eliminated. Oh, I didn't realize that there's a trade-off to this policy. I thought it was all good. I'm not saying every voter's like that. If you're at the point where you're listening to this podcast, even if you disagree with me, you're probably not one of those people. But a lot of people pretty much, they, they, they listen to the news or NPR for about 15 minutes and they vote. And, and you'll see all kinds of people on social media that are influencers. They, they, they all posted their I voted sticker, you know, on, on election day. Because of course they vote. And of course 18-year-olds vote. And, and of course, and I don't even mean just to say them, but there are people like a lot, like, um, I, I, I know when my parents have voted in the past, they've just been kind of down the party line voters and they don't even really watch the news or consume politics. So it's like, do, do they understand these things beyond their intuitions? Do they really listen to honest arguments that go both ways? It's like, they, they, they really don't. So the, 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 the takeaway from these things is in various degrees, the incentives of our politics is anti-intellectual and if we made politics more intellectual or were more honest about it, people who are pretty neutral on things could easily come out on differing sides of issues. Um, in the end, our politics is appeals that are anti-intellectual and people striving to, to utilize tactics that get them more power. None, 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 not a single one of these things improves the discourse. Not a single one of these things is 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 something that would lead to a technocrat being in charge that would do the best version 
of welfare that would do the best version of universal basic income, that would do the best version of universal health care, and the one that works as opposed to the ones that we've seen that don't work. The, you can't get a technocrat that is actually effective in charge. The, the incentive of the state leads to the types of people that cannot run a state if it is even possible to run a state. So that, that, that's the idea that I want to get across to anybody who's listening to this that is kind of sympathetic to the idea that you don't have to defend where government is right now just because you defend um, a lot of like progressive ideals or something like that. Okay, <laughs> so that was a lot of ranting. I tried to wrap up like six minutes ago, but I, I just felt the need to keep going apparently. Um, I hope you got something out of this episode. Feel free to check out the backlog of episodes. Um, so you, you, at this point, I think you could be listening to this on YouTube or BitChute or on a podcast feed. Um, but I have created, a, if you're listening to it on the podcast feed where I've historically uploaded everything, I am now uploading things to a YouTube channel and a BitChute channel. You can find me if you, just by searching Obey Podcast. You should be able to find uh, the, you should be able to find and subscribe to the channel there. Um, put, and, and if, if you enjoy, just check out all the all the content I've been putting out and keep following up in the future. I also do another podcast with a co-host who's also named Matt. And we um, we, we, we significantly differ on politics. And a lot of my, my, my thoughts that were in this episode kind of pertain to some of the discussions we've had on policy. <laughs> um, it, he, he, if, if he listens to this one, he could may, may, maybe see this too, as a, to some extent a subtweet of a lot of his, um, his responses if I bring up a policy. But I, but but that, that's the kind of thing that we'll argue about on that show, which that that show is beyond talking points, um, where we really argue about philosophy and principles and politics, and we we do that one every week, and we uh, really go off at each other. So so it's all it's always a fun one. We're 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 very very civil, even though we disagree significantly. He's more of an ancom or progressive to some extent, and um, it's it's always it's always a satisfying conversation. We cover all sorts of uh. We, we cover all sorts of issues, and I, I'm sure I've gotten myself in trouble a lot of time if a, if a CIA agent decides to create a file on me. He's going to have a treasure trove of stuff in there, because um, that's where my ANCAP side really, really does come to shine, um, if it doesn't so here. Um, but I hope you guys appreciated the volume one of the anti-democratic, um, the anti-democratic kind of philosophizing, and, and I mean that in like the small d democratic way. Um, so yeah. I appreciate it if you got this far. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm just going to sign off there. I'm done stammering. Sign off. It's Matt. Thank you. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher or share the podcast with a friend. You can find out more information about the Obey podcast at anchor.fm slash obey podcast or on Twitter at The Obey Podcast. Until next time. Next time.